Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and on this episode, episode 31, I am going to give some hive updates, in particular what I've been seeing with varroa mite infestations and then I'm going to talk a little bit about bumblefoot in chickens and then chicken reproductive disorders. First things first, I have had kind of a crazy morning. So today I'm recording on Monday the 26th and I was out this morning doing my grocery shop and on the way to one of the stores I witnessed a car accident and basically someone ran a red light and t-boned a minivan and it was a relatively busy intersection. Um, There were plenty of cars around, no one else was hit And I pulled over to see if everyone was okay and no one else stopped. And I just found that a little depressing that no one else seemed to care. And one of the cars, the car that blew the red light, um, it was an older lady, her airbags deployed. So I was trying to make sure that, you know, she was okay, that she didn't get hit in the head or anything. And thankfully everyone was okay. Um, I did stay until um, first responders got there. And um, the woman who was hit, she hasn't been in an accident before, which is kind of amazing to me because she looked like she was middle-aged and I've been in a couple of accidents and I'm not uh, that old just yet. Uh, But yeah, so I was giving her advice about like how it's going to work and what's going to happen and then, um, you know, take pictures, all that kind of stuff. And I have a dash cam, so I gave her my contact information, full name, phone number, told her I have a dash cam. I don't anticipate any issues with her insurance, but I said that she has my permission to contact me. I'll save the footage if they need it. I have the footage. So that kind of shook me a little bit, um, but I was glad I stopped uh, in particular because the woman who actually blew through the light, the older woman, she was really upset. She was so apologetic. Um, She just was completely shaken up. She was in tears. It was it was very sad. I just, uh, anyway, so that I did that and then I carried on shopping, came home. My husband clipped the wind mirror when he was leaving. And so that's now broken. And, oh, I just, yeah, it's not, it's not a good car day people. So, um, fingers crossed the rest of the day goes a little better. Okay. So I want to start by um, talking about bumblefoot in chickens. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, you know that Meatbutt, who is one of my original flock girls, has a pretty bad case of bumblefoot. She actually has two calluses and they kind of connect together underneath. So there was a lot to clear out. Now, bumblefoot is a common staph infection and it happens in chickens a fair amount. And the term bumblefoot comes from the old British word bumble, which means to walk unsteadily. And it also denotes clumsiness. And this is because some of the earliest symptoms you'll notice in your chicken will be maybe they're limping slightly. They seem hesitant to put weight on one of their feet or they're lifting that foot up a lot when they're standing still. And usually what happens with bumblefoot is that there's some kind of minor injury, like a scratch uh, or like a splinter wound, something very small, but it allows the um, bacteria to get into the pad of the foot and over time it forms an abscess. 
Now, if you find this infection early, you'll likely find just a soft lump in the pad. But usually most people find it once it's progressed a little bit because chickens are very, very good at hiding illness and pain. So most of us will find it once the infection has reached a point where there is an abscess inside the soft footbed, but the outer area will be hard and scabbed over. And in order to treat bumblefoot, you need to carefully remove the outer scab and flush out the abscess inside the foot. And the abscess often forms a kind of nasty, like thick, cheesy material is sort of what you'll probably find. And that needs to come out. And sometimes it can be very difficult to remove. And some people have even taken chickens to the vet for it because it's actually had to be surgically cut out. Now, in my experience, this isn't the first time I've had to treat bumblefoot. I've never had to have it surgically removed. Um, I find that if you soften the area and you can get that outer scab removed, that usually the infection can be squeezed out gently. And if you can't squeeze it out, you can usually flush it out with a warm saline solution. So in terms of general treatment for bumblefoot, what is recommended is that initial softening of the abscess and the hard skin. So you want to soak the chicken's foot in warm water and you can dissolve some Epsom salts in that water or if you have like just bottles of saline solution, just gently warm that up and then just soak their foot in it. And you might need to do this a couple of times if it's particularly tough to remove if the chicken seems to be in pain when you're trying to take the scab off you know maybe soak it a little bit longer 10 minutes or so usually does the trick and then just gently massage the area as well once you've soaked it you can remove that outer scab gently squeeze out the contents or flush them out and for flushing use a betadine solution or a saline solution Once you think you've got everything, or sometimes there might be a a little bit of a core left behind, it's okay to treat as long as you plan to come back. Because usually what will happen is um, you're either going to get everything or there would be that core that you just can't get yet. It hasn't come enough to the surface. In that case, I do recommend applying Neosporin or some kind of other antibiotic ointment and wrapping the foot, but coming back to soak again. Because the more you soak, the more you're going to draw that core out. So for either case, you want to apply the antibiotic ointment and then gently wrap the foot. Be careful that you don't wrap too tightly. Uh, Veterinary wrap is the best thing to use. You might also need some tape. And then if you can, move your chicken into a clean and dry area. If the core has been removed, you want to check on the foot every other day or every three days, clean the area, apply more ointment and then wrap again until it starts to seal up with fresh, healthy tissue. If you have a core left behind, when you go to unwrap the foot, you're going to start at the beginning and you're going to soak and soften again, then do the flush, then apply the antibiotic ointment and then wrap. And um, information on this was, there's actually a lot of good information on Google, but as always, I refer to my Chicken Health Handbook by Gail Damaro for the majority of this information. Okay, so before I get onto other chicken business, which is actually going to make up the bulk of today's episode, I want to give an update on my hives. 
So in my last episode, I mentioned that I wasn't sure when I was going to have a chance to go out and I didn't know what I would have to update everyone about. Um, As it turned out, I had two really good weather days, sort of mid 70s, relatively clear, no rain, low, um, low wind to get out there. And I had a lot to do in that time. And overall, I am not happy with what I'm seeing in my apiary. Um, half of my colonies do not appear to be responding to the mite treatments. And what's really thrown me has been the lack of brood. And I'm assuming it's because we had that really hard dearth and often the queens will stop laying during a very, very hard dearth. And then we went into fall when everyone, all the bees uh, became fixated on honey so a lot of honey came in a lot of nectar came in and uh but there's I just haven't seen what I'm used to seeing in terms of brood buildup now the populations are still pretty good I'm just concerned that it's not enough um so like I said there's there's a fair amount of honey in most of the colonies and I still have honey frames that are going back on a couple once the apivar strips come off I have got my candy boards ready to go. I've made my own no-cook bee fondant, which is just sugar and water mixed together into um, like a solid. And I'm going to add some pollen patties to it and put those out. And I will have the quilt boards ready to go this week. Now, I think that two of my colonies have a, a decent shot of getting through the winter, but I'm really not sure about the others. So... I'm feeling kind of disheartened. I feel like I know somehow even less in this second year than I did during my first. Um, But I have wrapped the hives. I've applied mouse guards. I've tilted them forward slightly so any moisture buildup can flow out the front. And all I can do now is get the fondant on, get the quilt boards on, and then wish them the best. So to do a rundown, Hive number one, this is my Ohio queen, uh, one of the hives that overwintered successfully last year. Now the previous mite count, which was four weeks ago, was nine mites to 300 bees. And the current mite count is five mites to 300 bees. So it has decreased, not as much as I would hope to see. The treatment I used was Apivar and probably why it wasn't as effective is because Apivar is most effective in the brood nest and there has been almost no brood. So I don't think it's being distributed as effectively as it would be if there was a lot of brood in there. Now they're set up with two deeps. One is completely full of honey. The other one, which would be the equivalent of their brood box if they had any brood, is a mix of honey, pollen, and then some empty comb. Um... I think this hive has a decent chance of survival, but I'm not going to hold my breath about anything this year. Hive number two is my southern queen. Again, this is one of the colonies that successfully made it through last winter. The previous mite count on this hive, which was four weeks ago, was 12 to 300. And the new count is five to 300. So that's really good. The treatment I had on this one was Apigard. 
And what's interesting is that this is the only hive that's responded really, really well to Apigard. In fact, I'm probably not going to use Apigard again based on the results that I've had. So it's interesting to me that this colony has done so well. This colony has two deeps and one medium. The medium is absolutely full of honey. And the deeps are a mix of honey, pollen, and a little bit of empty comb around a smattering of brood. Um, they, like I said, they overwintered previously, and I think this is the other hive that has a decent chance of survival. Hive number three is my Saskatraz daughter queen. The previous mite count was 12 to 300, and the new count is 6 to 300, so that's halved, that's pretty good. The treatment I used was Apivar. Right now they just have one deep, which is a mixture of honey, pollen, and a little bit of space for brood. But this is one of the hives that I took a full super of honey from to hold on to until the treatment was done. And the treatment will be done within the next two weeks. So that honey is going to go back on. And in the meantime, they're getting fondant. I'm going to give this hive a middling shot at survival. I'm not sure, but I think things are okay. So it's really going to depend. Hive number four, this is my Saskatraz mother queen. The previous mite count was nine to 300 and the current count is 15. So that's increased quite a lot. The treatment I used was Apivar. They have one deep and one medium that's full of honey. Now, the last time I went into this hive, I was very, very worried. Um, I actually saw mites on the adult bees, which is the first time I have ever seen that. This time I did not see mites on the bees, but I did see a young bee with a very bad case of deformed wing virus. So this hive is being hit extremely hard by Varroa and Varroa transmitted diseases. They currently don't have any brood in there, but they obviously recently had a hatch because I saw the young bee and the population has increased. Now, I added some frames from hive number five, which I'll get to in a second, and I think that has helped shore things up a little bit um, again this one I'm going to give a middling to poor chance of survival leaning towards them maybe not making it because of how hard they're clearly being hit by Varroa hive number five this is my small queen who was originally in nucleus colony number three but moved into a larger hive and I suspect this queen is from Saskatraz lineage because of the fact that uh, she's kept drones a lot longer which is something I have seen through all the Saskatraz colonies. Now their previous mite count on this colony was 12 to 300 and it's gone down to 8 to 300 which isn't great but it's better than nothing. Uh, the treatment I've been using for them is Apigard. This is the hive that I decided to break apart. Um, so basically what I did is I took five frames with the queen and I moved that into a nucleus box, which I then merged with the nucleus colony number two after removing their queen. Um, I used newspaper to merge so that uh, as the bees in the nucleus colony realize A, that their queen is missing and B, that there's bees above them, they smell each other through the newspaper and by the time they start pulling it apart to get to each other, the plan is that her pheromones have transmitted through the colony and they will accept her as the queen. Uh, the remaining frames from this colony, because it was a deep and a medium, I kind of 
distributed as I saw fit. So a lot of them went to hive number four, which I just talked about, but some of the deep frames I gave to nucleus colony number one, who needed a little bit more honey storage. So the nucleus colony number one, this is from my Ohio genetics. The previous mite count was six to 300 and it's gone up slightly to eight. They have apigard on. Now I'm not entirely surprised they went up because the nucleus colony next to them has an absolutely shockingly high count. And I think there's been some drifting going on and transmission of Varroa that way. Now I was worried they didn't have enough honey, which is why I added some frames from hive number five. And what I did is nucleus colony number one and number two, I pushed up against each other and they have one single wrap over them because I have read that two nucleus colonies, if they are kept this way, will actually share heat through the walls and will cluster um, against that kind of shared wall to maximize their um, thermoregulation. So nucleus colony number two, this was the colony that swarmed and the new queen mated like two months ago. So when I had to make a decision about getting rid of a queen, this is the queen I decided to cull. Um, even though she is actually quite beautiful and I, I love queen bees, so it was really difficult, but I caught her, put her in a queen cage and then I froze her because I couldn't bear to pinch or squish her. But the reason I chose this queen is because she mated late in the year and there are less drones available. So I feel like her chance of very diverse genetics to pass on to her offspring are, are much lower than my other queens. Also, this colony is not handling its mite well at all. Uh, the previous mite count was 19 to 300 and it's gone up to 25 to 300. I had Apigard on them and it doesn't seem to be making a difference at all. So I decided that it's not doing great, sacrifice the queen. And because there is basically no brood in this colony, um, I decided it was worth the risk of merging with the bees and queen from hive number five. So I know it's a risk um, because the Varroa are there so either the bees from hive number five are going to be able to handle the varroa or not but this is the best chance that i had to get them through so we'll see they do have good honey stores they do have really good pollen stores but because of the varroa because of having to merge two colonies and because getting nucleus colonies through winter is new for me anyway i'm giving them a low chance of survival so that's it that's where I am I have two nucleus colonies and I have the four full-sized colonies um I'm just real I'm just real heartbroken honestly um it did not go this year has not gone how I wanted it to and it's difficult because in some ways if I could look back and say, oh, Gemma, you idiot, you should have done X here and you did Y, or you should have just done something here, but you did nothing. And it's really not that simple. Uh, looking back with hindsight, I wouldn't have taken off that second harvest of honey that I did. But 
at the time, I didn't know we were going to go into a dearth and I didn't know the dearth was going to be as difficult as it has been. I also have never had an issue with robbing like I have this year. And I know I mentioned previously that I strongly suspect that it might be the Saskatraz bees, that they might be more prone to robbing. And that both made it harder to work the hives. And I also think is responsible for the Varroa infestations being so bad. And it's I am glad that I had that one reading from Hive 2 where they had almost, they had one mite per 300 bees. And then within two weeks that had gone up to 12. So I could see when it was in the year that the infestation spiked. And this is one of the reasons why people say, do the mite tests, you know, every month, every six weeks or so, if you can, after spring because it's going to give you this good uh, data that you can look back on. So yes, if there hadn't been a dearth, I think things would be different if they weren't robbing so much, which also again is related to the dearth, which is why I think the Saskatraz bees are partly responsible for robbing, but it could just be that the dearth was hard enough that all of the bees were going to rob anyway. I've also heard from other keepers in the area that they've had very high infestation levels this year. So the chances of colonies around me potentially collapsing from mite infestations, then the dearth causing the bees to rob, they go to those colonies as we learned in Thomas Seeley's book, The Lives of Bees. When they rob colonies that collapse from Varroa, the Varroa jump onto the adult bees and they bring them back to their hives. So that's all played a part. I do think that my treatments that I'm using aren't great. I've had pretty good success with Apivar last year. I'm probably not going to do it again. I'm not impressed with Apigard at all. I'm not going to use that. I do have a couple of cups left to use and I might on colonies that have very low counts, but I still feel it's worth putting a treatment in um next year but what I'm really going to be doing is investing in formic acid and oxalic acid now the downside with oxalic acid is that you can't have the honey supers on but a lot of people who seem to use it use it on a schedule so they don't really might check they do a treatment of the oxalic acid in the spring before the honey comes in and again, after the um, the harvest, the honey harvest, before the full harvest starts. And it seems as if there has been no documentation of a resistance buildup to oxalic acid, which is why people feel that it's good to use this treatment sort of almost prophylactically or before you've confirmed varroa infestation. Now, you know me, I have to confirm the presence of varroa before I'm going to stress my bees with the treatment. But maybe oxalic acid is the way to go. Formic acid, which you'll find in like uh, Mitaway quick strips, uses formic acid. This is the only treatment I'm aware of that you can use with the honey supers on. So that makes things a lot easier. The downside is that bees don't seem to like it. Uh, it has a higher rate of the bees absconding and it has a higher rate of, oh, Sorry, if you can hear something right now, that's my whippet trying to climb into my lap from under the desk. <laughs> Apologies for that. 
Um, oh, her little feet are cold. Oh, I have to put the heat on. Anyway, uh, where was I? Yes, so formic acid, you can apply it with the honey supers, but it has a higher rate of absconsion and a higher rate of queen death, which is why I've avoided it. When I did look into it this year, I was also really shocked by the price tag. So even though Jeff Bezos might actually be the devil, I do use Amazon a lot. Um, and I checked Amazon and, um, which, cause they usually have the best prices and Amazon uh, has quick strips formic acid strips for $75 for 10 strips. And it's recommended that you use two strips per deep. That's a really expensive treatment. In comparison, oxalic acid, it's expensive to get started because you need the appropriate respirator mask and the vaporizer. But then the actual oxalic acid is affordable. So once you've done that initial investment on the equipment, the actual chemical is is cheaper so I might experiment with both next year and obviously I'll let you know how things go um I just have not been super impressed with Apigard period and Apivar I think works fine when there's a suitable amount of brood because that is how it's supposed to be used and this year it just didn't work out that way but that's all I had and it comes in a pack. And once you open that pack, you need to use all those strips. So yeah, that's where I am. I'm very despondent. I'm sorry to be a downer, um, but that's where I am. And I hope that my bees will prove me wrong and that they'll get through the winter and I'll see them in the spring and I can help build them up again, but um, I'm not gonna hold my breath. So moving on, this next bit is also a little bit sad, but then it is gonna eventually cheer up. So bear with me. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that actually right before my last episode released, I had to have Bubbles, one of my chickens, euthanized. Now, Bubbles was one of two hens that I rescued from Cleveland Animal Control in May of 2019. Chickens are legal in Cleveland, the city of Cleveland, but roosters are not. And it seems like a, a fair amount of people keep them, but sadly, they get out a lot and they are often... Well, not often, but they do pop up at animal control and people rarely seem to claim them or be looking for them. Now, sadly, animal control is not set up to house them. So they will be trying to move them on as fast as they can. And I have a friend who coordinates with the animal control in the city of Cleveland as part of her dog rescue work. So she's the one who originally contacted me about Bubbles and Squeak. And um, at the time, it it ended up being kind of kismet because Agatha was living alone in the small coop or the special needs coop, as I call it. She was um, quite sick at the time. And the other girls in the big flock were beating the stuffing out of her every day. It was really bad. And I was very worried that they were going to kill her. So she had been moved into the small coop where she could be safe. But the problem was that... Um, Eventually, she would need companionship. Uh, they're flock animals, obviously. They do have social interaction, but mainly the big issue will be when it's very, very cold. So when it's cold, chickens need to share body heat. And you can't do that if you're a single chicken. So I heard about Bubbles and Squeak, and they were clearly production hens. They were 
ISA or Isa Browns, like Babette, my very first rescue hen. And Squeak had a cut beak. So she looked almost exactly like Babette. And to me, that was it. I had to get them. So I went, I picked them up and I brought them back and everything with Agatha went great. The introduction was really smooth and they very quickly became a bonded flock of three. Now I called them the Cleveland girls for a very long period of time um, and they are both just very, very gentle, like a lot of production hens are, and I've never witnessed them bullying sweet old lady Agatha. Now this past summer I had talked on here about how Bubbles suffered from heat stress. Um, I noticed that she was drinking huge quantities of water and it was causing diarrhea as it all just flushed right through her and so I brought her into the the cool air-conditioned house and I read a bit about heat stress and I gave her a high protein diet and watched her until things started to clear up. Once she was stronger she was no longer drinking huge amounts of fluid. She had firm poops. I also wormed her just to be sure that there, that wasn't contributing. And I then wormed Agatha and Squeak so that hopefully if there were worms, they weren't going to reinfect each other. She recovered and she went back out to the special needs coop once the weather was a little cooler. When the shorter days started happening in the past couple of weeks, bubbles seemed uncomfortable she started molting and then stopped and that kind of caught my attention as well so that really should have been my first clue now I thought she was just uncomfortable because molting is unpleasant I noticed she wasn't eating as much so I started putting her favorite treats out for her and that seemed to encourage her back to eating and she seemed to have recovered within about four days but then a little bit more time went by and I noticed that she seemed uncomfortable again. She was standing a little oddly. The diarrhea was back. And so at that point, I hauled her out. And the minute I got hold of her, I could feel how swollen and rock hard her abdomen was. And so I immediately knew that something was seriously wrong. So I went to my faithful chicken health handbook and I started going through looking at what this could be a symptom of. Now, the way that I recommend doing this, I know this sounds a bit self-explanatory, but I've just found it useful that you find a symptom, you look up the symptom, and then you look at all the pages that it's mentioned on. So I looked at uh, like swollen abdomen, and that led me to a number of different potential health issues. And none of them are things that can really be treated at home. So I scheduled an appointment for my vet, hoping that we could get a diagnosis. But by the time the vet appointment happened, that day, she was, um, she was just in a bad way. She was just kind of hunched over. Her comb was floppy. She could barely keep her eyes open. And it was, it was actually really sweet because Agatha was sitting with her and like cooing gently to her and then Squeak would like wander in and check on the two of them and then wander off again. And it was just, it was really touching because I feel like they're so beautifully bonded as a flock and they support each other. And it was very, very sweet. So I had to kind of 
gently shoo Agatha and squeak out the way and I took Bubbles in. And because of COVID precautions, um, I'm not allowed in the vet. But when the tech came out to the car, I said, look, I brought her in for a diagnosis, but I think you agree with me that she needs to be euthanized. And sure enough, she, she'd been in there with the vet for like a minute when he called and he was like, yes, I agree that she needs to be let go. Um, nothing that this could be is something that we can repair. And he's like, even if you wanted to invest in surgery, it would be exploratory surgery and she's probably going to die during the surgery. So I couldn't be with her when she passed. They did offer to bring her back out to me for a while, but she's never been super comfortable with people. Like she's very sweet, but she's not a snuggly hen. And so I didn't want to stress her anymore. So I said, no, like I trust you guys. I know it will be gentle. Just let her go, but please bring me the body. So, you know, she passed, they brought her body to me and they're so sweet at my vet. They always wrap because they did this with ginger. They wrap them so carefully in like a soft blanket for me. And it's just really sweet. And they're always so just kind to me because I know that I'm, I'm like that crazy chicken lady who is like, you know, I won't break my chicken's necks. I won't eat my pets. I won't get rid of them when they're no longer egg laying. And it's just, it's so sweet that they don't treat me like an idiot or treat me like a sucker that they are you know, sympathetic and they respect how I view my animals and they are very supportive. And so I was very appreciative of that. Also, as a side note, I really appreciate the fact that my vet didn't even charge me a visit. He just charged me for the euthanasia injection. So that was very kind of him. And for anyone wondering who might also be in Ohio, that cost $65. So that was that. So I brought her back and I buried her at the back of the property behind the two coops, behind the like leaf and compost pile right next to the grave where I buried Ginger. And I'll be honest that it threw me for a bit of a loop. So I wasn't like crying everywhere or anything like that, which is admittedly how I usually respond to stuff. I was more just just sad and down for a bit because even though Bubbles and I never particularly bonded, it just it hurts a lot to lose the rescue hens because they never seem to get long enough with me. They never get long enough as a free chicken. And that's all I want for them. You know, these these hens that somehow escaped the slaughter after they were deemed unuseful in their factory farms or whatever, I so want to give them this flock life. I want them to be a chicken, to see the outside, to see the sky, to feel the wind, to have dust baths and good food and and clean water and loving touches and all that kind of stuff. I want them to be a, a real chicken. And it just makes me sad that it seems like I can usually get a year out of them before their reproductive system goes haywire, which is sadly what happens with a lot of these production breeds. And I'm also sad that I didn't realize what was going on with her sooner because I think it it hurt a lot. I think she was in a lot of pain. And I'm trying to forgive myself because birds and reptiles are amazing at hiding their pain and hiding illness until it's almost too late. And I know that. I know that she was hiding it because it's a survival mechanism. So I'm trying to be gentle about that. 
But I am ultimately happy that I had her for the time that I did, that I could give her a chance to be a chicken. She had this bonded flock that really cared about her. And when it came down to it, she got to pass away in a warm, safe, caring environment. And she didn't feel any pain at the end. Now, I'm bringing this all up, not just because it happened and I'm sad, but because it's very common for chickens to have reproductive disorders. And it's something that you might see in your own flock, whether they are heritage breed, whether they're purebred chickens, barnyard mixes, or if you rescue production breeds. Now, obviously production breeds are more prone to having these issues because they've been bred to have such a busy reproductive system to produce so many eggs. It's so hyperactive that that increases the chances that something can go wrong. Particularly if it's an actual rescue chicken from a factory farm where it's possible that they're inbreeding to produce the kind of hen that they want and the early start isn't very healthful it's not like those chicks that you lovingly hand raised and gave the best food and fresh greens and you let them you know free roam or you took them in your chicken tractors and you let them have grass and scratch the soil you know they have a bad environment that they grow up in and so that affects their health as well so I wanted to talk a bit about what you might see in your chickens what kind of reproductive disorders can occur and as I was doing the reading I realized that the best way to start is to discuss the reproductive system of chickens. And I'm really glad that I was prompted to revisit this because it's been a long time since I read about how the reproductive system works in chickens and I'd forgotten almost all of it. And it's actually really, really interesting. So I'm glad that I had a chance in some ways to go back and revisit this. So a fully developed reproductive system in a chicken consists of just one ovary and a multi-compartmented passageway called the oviduct, which is just over two feet or 60 centimetres long. So visualise the oviduct as a long tube-like organ. At the top, you're going to have the left ovary that sort of leads into a funnel-like organ. And this is where yolks are released to and will be fertilized if sperm is present. This then leads to a 13 inch area called the magnum where thick albumin is added. Then you have four inches of the isthmus where shell membranes are added. Next, you have four to five inches of the shell gland or uterus, which is where the shell is added and pigmentation occurs. Then four to five inches, which is the vagina, and this is where the bloom is added and the egg is rotated. And this leads into the cloaca, which the egg passes through on its way to the vent, which is where the egg emerges from. And all of this together is the oviduct. Now, what I find very fascinating is that a female chick as an embryo starts with a pair of reproductive organs, a right and a left ovary. But normally, only the left ovary and oviduct develop and become functional. Now, some people have theorized that this is to avoid the stress of a chicken carrying two eggs at once. But it seems as if no one's actually sure why this happens. Now, a fully developed ovary consists of many undeveloped yolks or ova and is located just below the hen's backbone in the vicinity of the upper kidneys. 
As each yolk or ovum develops, it is released into the oviduct, usually an hour after the previous egg was laid. During this journey through the oviduct is when fertilization will occur if sperm is present. The ovum is encased in albumin, it's wrapped in membranes, sealed in the shell, and given a thin protective coating called the cuticle or bloom. This whole process from oven release to fully formed egg takes 25 hours, which means that each egg a chicken produces is laid roughly an hour later every single day. As the cycle progresses and a hen reaches a time of laying of approximately 3 p.m., she will skip a day and restart the following morning. And this seems to be because chickens just don't lay in the evening, so it doesn't just continue going on. Now, a group of eggs laid within a single cycle is called a clutch, and a typical clutch consists of five eggs. If the cycle is interrupted by some kind of stressor, such as a predator attack or illness, then shell abnormalities can occur. Occasionally, yolks are released less than 25 hours apart, causing two eggs to develop at the same time. As these eggs move together within the oviduct, they can actually press up against each other, which causes misshapen shells. The need for extra calcium at this time can also result in thin or improperly formed shells. Seasonal changes also affect the eggshell and often what you'll see is that the shell is thicker in winter and thinner in summer. Molting also interrupts egg production as protein is used to grow new feathers. And it's not uncommon to find a few funky looking eggs when hens start laying again in the spring. The occasional mishap, such as I've just described, is nothing to worry about. And this is just a normal glitch in the system. Fun fact, egg shape is actually inherited, which I did not know. Now, depending on the breed, pullets, young female chickens, start laying between four to five months old with peak production occurring at seven to eight months. Laying gradually declines after this until the first molt at 18 months. This pattern continues as hens lay. So following the annual molt, production is greater than it was at the end of the previous year, but not as good as the previous spring. So basically there's a natural decline in production each year. And this is actually why production hens are euthanized before their first molt. This allows maximum egg production with no break as the young pullets are brought in to replace those that are culled. Now, what I found really interesting when reading about the reproductive system of chickens is that chickens are capable of spontaneous sex changes. And this is when hens develop the characteristics of a rooster. This usually occurs at the end of a hen's reproductive life. As her left ovary stops functioning and eventually atrophies, the latent undeveloped right ovary can develop into an ovary testicle that produces very low levels of estrogen, but quite a bit of testosterone. This causes the hen to develop male sex characteristics, such as an enlarged comb, leg spurs, male plumage, and in some very rare cases, viable sperm that can fertilize eggs. Occasionally, spontaneous sex change is actually seen in pullets. Before their reproductive system fully develops, an, inf an infection can cause inflammation, and this causes the left ovary to basically pause in its development or sometimes atrophy. In response, the right ovary becomes 
an ovary testicle, and the pullet never lays and instead appears to be a rooster. Very occasionally, this infection clears up, the inflammation goes away, and the left ovary can finish developing, at which point what you thought was a rooster now begins to lay eggs. And what's fascinating to me is historically, there are many accounts of witchcraft being quote-unquote proven in an area like a town or a village where a rooster suddenly starts laying eggs. There's actually a famous case um, of a poor rooster called Basil in Switzerland who was actually burned at the stake in 1474 for laying an egg and therefore proving that he was in fact a witch. So I find it very interesting to think that perhaps this natural, although rare phenomena, is what caused people to believe that this was witchcraft. Okay, so we know now how the reproductive system in chickens work. And let's go back to some issues, common reproductive disorders that can occur. So when I initially felt that swollen abdomen, I looked up the symptom in my chicken health handbook by Gail Damaro, and I came up with a couple of things it could be. Bubbles could have been egg bound. She could have an infection of the cloaca. She could have something called egg peritonitis or salpingitis or something called ascites. So I'm going to start with ascites. Now, this was one of the things I initially ruled out. Ascites means, well, or it stands for water belly or sometimes called dropsy. And this actually isn't a disease, but it's a sign of heart failure. And it results in fluid accumulating in the body cavity. And so it feels uh, soft, even though there is swelling. If you push it or gently probe that area, it's going to feel kind of squishy. So that's why I was able to rule it out because bubbles had a hard mass. Now, this is more common in broiler chickens or meat birds, and that's because of their fast growth. So what happens is that broiler chickens and any kind of meat bird like the Cornish or the Cornish cross, they're bred to grow so fast to get to that table weight as fast as possible that they have a very high metabolism. And this in turn necessitates a large amount of oxygen. If the hens or chickens need for oxygen exceeds the normal functioning of the heart and the lungs, the heart has to pump more in an attempt to supply the body with that much needed oxygen. This causes an increase in blood pressure uh, between the heart and the lungs And so technically, this condition is pulmonary hypertension syndrome. Birds' lungs are more rigid than our human lungs. And so they cannot handle this increase in pressure, which in turn then makes the heart pump even more because of this increase. And it's facing resistance and the heart's trying to overcome that resistance by then pumping even harder. This leads to an enlargening and thickening of the heart muscle and eventually the right heart valve will um, no longer be able to close properly, which causes blood to back up into the liver area. Liquid then starts leaking from the liver into the body cavity due to this increase in pressure. And this protein-rich liquid is known as acidic fluid and is comprised of blood plasma and lymph fluid. It may be clear and water-like or yellowish and jelly-like, which 
you wouldn't see obviously unless you tried to drain it or if you performed a necropsy. Fluid in the abdomen restricts the air sacs of the bird and so the bird will not be able to get enough oxygen even more so basically they were already suffering and now they're suffering even more and they just feel like they can't get enough oxygen and so that makes the heart pump harder and so on and so forth so it's basically this building cycle of terribleness and eventually the heart just fails and the bird will die now you might be able to prevent this with a more slow growth, encouraging slower growth by controlling the food. But honestly, if you are producing meat birds, you're likely culling them at a young age anyway. So it sounds like this is something that can occur occasionally in meat birds. It's just kind of a risk of raising them and just being mindful about their food is probably a good idea. Now, in laying hens, not much is known about this condition and what could cause it, although it, it has been seen. Uh, some um, potential causes could be tumours, liver damage due to infection, obesity leading to clogged arteries, poor ventilation, a buildup of ammonia fumes, things like that. So anything that kind of affects the liver or the lungs could potentially lead to this uh heart having to be extra hard and there is no cure and no treatment for this sadly so the next thing I looked up was an infection of the cloaca so the cloaca is where the urinary reproductive and digest digestive tract all empty so it's subject to disease um, related to all three of these systems now, the typical sign of an infection in this area is a smelly, slimy discharge oozing from the vent and sticking to the surrounding feathers. It can be caused by bacteria, fungus, yeast, protozoa or parasites. And you need to identify the cause of infection in order to treat it effectively. Now, some early symptoms of this kind of infection are loose, watery or slimy stool, soiled feathers below the vent, soft and bloated abdomen, gas, reduced egg production, and eating normally. Later or advanced symptoms will be um, very slimy diarrhea, straining as if the bird is trying to pass an egg or pass feces but nothing is coming out, a bad odour coming from the vent area, a hard and swollen abdomen, a red swollen vent and anorexia or going off food altogether. At the first sign of something going on in this area, it's recommended that you clean the feathers with warm soapy water that have been soiled. And you can also gently squirt a saline solution into the vent and just sort of massage the area. Sometimes if the chicken is constipated, this massage will help them remove the fecal matter and pass it normally and then once the cloaca is clean you can follow up with a iodine based antiseptic such as betadine it's also recommended to add vinegar to the drinking water one tablespoon per gallon of water 
But if there's been no improvement after this kind of thorough cleaning of the area, then you'll need to repeat the treatment. And it's very strongly recommended that you take a fecal sample and you have your vet look at it because they might be able to say what's going on and you can treat the potential cause of the infection. You do need to move as quickly as possible if you see something wrong with a chicken's cloaca because, as I said, it's connected to the three different systems and so infection can spread up, it can go into the colon and it can go into the uterus and then once it gets there, things are going to get bad fast. So the next thing I looked at and which is a very common issue in production chickens is being egg bound which is also known as overduct impaction and it's exactly what it sounds like that the egg is stuck so basically what happens is in the uterus an egg is shaped with the pointy end facing down or towards the cervix as it moves through the vagina and the cloaca it turns so that the large end will come out of the chicken first Sometimes during this turning period, the egg gets stuck. And this is what we call being egg bound. Now, there are some causes of it. Uh, the egg could just be too large. Maybe it's a double yolka or the pullet is actually very young and it started laying sooner than its poor little body can really handle. Uh, the hen could be fat. Obesity causes too much pressure on the muscles responsible for egg laying, which prevents them from working effectively. It could be extremely cold. This makes the muscles stiff and unable to flex as they need to. Maybe the hen has very low calcium, which is um, needed for muscle contraction. And then, of course, it could be disease. Uh, there could be swelling in the overduct. Muscles could be losing strength, all of these kind of things. And what happens, unfortunately, if an egg is stuck is that unlaid eggs accumulate behind it and cause this buildup of material that bacteria can eventually build up in and then it becomes like a full infection. Now, if you cannot treat uh, this issue, the chicken will die. Uh, if you can't get that egg out, if you can't clear the infection, you're going to lose your chicken. So, in terms of diagnosing, the best way to do it is with an x-ray. It will show where the egg is and where it's stuck, but you can sometimes feel it. If you gently probe their abdomen around the vent area, sometimes you can actually feel the egg there. And you'll see that your hen is probably straining, trying to pass the egg, and occasionally you'll actually see the egg in the cloaca, or at least part of it. You can also lubricate a finger, and gently insert the finger and you might be able to actually feel where the egg is that way. So symptoms of being egg bound are this straining behavior, sluggishness, bloated abdomen, abdomen, a swollen vent, and it often happens very fast, so a sudden onset. In terms of treatment, you can try and treat it at home initially, and this can sometimes work. So you lubricate the vent and actually the egg if it's close to the vent with KY jelly or some other kind of lubricant and you basically uh, squirt that up into the cloaca or you can use a warm saline solution. Sometimes this is all that's needed to help that egg emerge. If it doesn't you can gently insert a lubricated finger and see if you can maneuver the egg down 
while gently pushing on the hen's abdomen with the other hand. Now this is tricky and I don't recommend it unless you're feeling particularly confident because you do not want to break the shell. If you break the shell, there's gonna be some issues. So another thing that you can try at home is just warming their vent area in the tummy of your hen. So you can get a damp, moist towel and just have your hen sit on that somewhere calm and warm. And sometimes this will help relax all those muscles and just give her that little bit of uh, push that she needs to get the egg out. If all else fails, then the only thing that you can do is to collapse the shell. Now this is tricky and I think for most of us we're not going to be able to do this so I recommend going to your vet but I did want to mention it because maybe some of you are adventurous or have skill in this area but basically what you do is you take a needle or a syringe and you carefully insert it into the egg that's inside your chicken and you remove the contents of the egg. Then you insert your fingers and you try and crush the shell in such a way that no sharp bits are going to injure your chicken. And then you very, very carefully remove the crushed shell and then flush the area with saline. But as I mentioned, this is very, very difficult. It's a very tricky procedure and I would strongly recommend if you can afford it to take your chicken to the vet. If you cannot and they cannot pass on their own, then I would euthanize. So next up is egg peritonitis. And this is actually when the unlaid egg material accumulates in the abdomen, which I just mentioned. So in the case of being egg bound, that egg is stuck and this egg material builds up behind it. But once that egg material becomes infected, that's what we call peritonitis. And This is sometimes caused by actually a bacterial infection of the oviduct. And if if that is the cause, that is what we call salpingitis. And that is an inflammation of the oviduct, which is often caused by bacterial infection. And salpingitis is what killed bubbles. That's what she was sick with. So salpingitis is very common. It typically affects high producing hens. Uh, The reason why is that the muscle separating their cloaca from the vagina has to be more relaxed, which allows fecal matter to migrate up into the oviduct. So initially there might be no signs of infection and Uh, The hen might seem perfectly well, but over time you'll notice a decrease in egg production and eventually they will stop laying eggs altogether. The material that normally develops into an egg builds up and basically festers in the oviduct. It's very unpleasant. Over time, it becomes a mass that looks like cooked yolks, it smells awful, and it can even include eggshells, membranes, and sometimes even intact eggs. Eventually, it becomes so big that it spills into the abdominal cavity. When it is at this point, it is pushing other organs out of the way, uh, usually the stomach and the intestines, so the chicken will completely go off food because they have no room left to digest anything. You also notice this swelling of the abdomen. It will be hard to the touch. The chicken will walk and stand with her rear end lowered more than usual um, because there's a lot of um, inflammation and discomfort and 
that's why she's standing that way and responding in that way. Uh, so signs are very similar to egg binding. Um, and in fact, this infection can cause egg binding. So the two often go sort of hand in hand. Um, eventually what happens is that um, the ovaries will actually, well, the ovary, the left ovary will actually stop functioning and eventually atrophy. So if you are lucky enough to have a hen that survives this condition, that hen will likely never lay an egg again. Sadly, however, most hens will die of this within about six months uh, of the initial infection. And once it happens, there's a critical stage to treat it. Once that buildup becomes a certain size, the only treatment is, is surgical removal. Just treating the infection won't, won't do anything. So usually by the time most of us realize what's going on, it's too late, sadly. Now, in terms of prevention, some of this is just part of having a hyperactive reproductive system, but we can assist by providing a healthy and clean environment with good ventil ventilation, good litter management, frequent water changes, and giving things like probiotics and prebiotics. Basically keeping our chickens as healthy as we can to support their immune system and hopefully prevent this kind of infection. So having said that, keep in mind that you can have the cleanest coop and the best environment and the best food and all the supplements in the world, but your hen might still get this and might still pass of it and it's not your fault. This is sadly a very common reproductive disorder. So as I said, Bubbles had salpingitis and it's actually one of the worst cases I've ever seen because when we brought the body home, we first performed a necropsy and the mass inside her was absolutely ginormous. I felt awful when I saw how large it was because it must have been incredibly painful. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a blog post like I always do for this episode and at the very end of the blog post, post after a gap I am going to provide pictures of the necropsy because I think they are educational and important but they're going to be right at the bottom so that if you want to avoid them you can just read through the blog post and everything will be fine I will warn you before you get down you can scroll down and see them if you choose to now when I lost bubbles I mentioned kind of jokingly that I wondered when the universe would see fit to send me another chicken, another rescue chicken. And I should have been more careful with my words because less than a week after Bubbles was euthanized, the same friend who found me Bubbles and Squeak reached out to say that Cleveland Animal Control had another chicken in. And I immediately expressed interest and within a few hours I had arranged to go and pick her up. So here is the happy part of my podcast. Finally, we've gone through my heartbreak of the hives, my loss of a chicken, the, all the things that can go wrong in the reproductive system of a chicken, and now we get to some good news. So I didn't know anything about this chicken other than it definitely was a hen and she was all black, very cute. I drove about an hour to go and get her. And when I got there with my little cat carrier, the animal control officer asked me, well, which chicken are you getting? And I was like, I thought there was just the one chicken. 
Well, it turns out they also had a rooster. And, well, they said they thought he was a rooster. They weren't 100%. So I said, you know, I'll take a look at him. I'll let you know if I can. So I took a look and he was a very handsome all-black rooster. Absolutely gorgeous. Now, I didn't have any additional carriers with me, so I had to leave him behind. But I told the animal control officer that I would network him and see if I could find him a good home. Now, when I picked up my chicken, the staff at Animal Control told me that they thought she was a black Australorp. So I did some Googling and reading through my many, many books about chicken breeds. And I was really excited because Australorps are supposed to be sweet, calm, gentle chickens that fit well into most flocks. So it sounded like she would be a really good fit to kind of take Bubbles' place in the hierarchy of my special needs flock. But I also noticed that they're often confused with black Jersey giants and that there's one way to tell the color of the soles of their feet. So my new girl who I haven't named yet, but I will eventually get to it, um, is very nervous. She's very scared of people. I didn't have a chance to check her feet until probably the second day that I had her when I wormed her. And it turns out that she has bright yellow feet. And what this means is that she's not an Australorp she's a Jersey giant. So I thought today I would end this episode by talking about the two breeds and the differences between them. So to start with the black Australorp, this is Australia's national breed and it was developed when black Orpingtons were imported from England in the 1890s to early 1900s and mixed with various breeds like the Menorca, the White Leghorn, the Plymouth Rock and the Langshan. They are a great utility bird. They are a very good egg layer said to produce over 200 eggs a year. And they also have a meaty body, which makes it a good dual purpose bird, which basically means you can have them for eggs and then you can eat them. The eggs are light brown in color and relatively large. The Australorp is known for being gentile and docile with quite a quiet personality. They have a single comb and a clean leg. The shanks and toes are slate gray and the soles of the feet are pinkish white or gray. Roosters typically weigh 8.5 pounds or 3.9 kilograms and hens are 6.5 pounds or 3 kilograms. They are considered a very good addition to most flocks and tend to fit in sort of middle of the hierarchy. They're not known to be picked on, but they also don't tend to pick on the other girls. Then we have the Black Jersey Giant. This is actually the largest purebred chicken breed, which was a shock to me because I thought Brahmas were, but apparently not. They were developed in New Jersey, which is where the name comes from, in 1870 by crossing Brahmas with Langshan and Java breeds. Now, the Jersey Giant is very slow to mature and this makes it expensive to feed. So even though it was originally developed to be a good dual purpose bird and eventually be a meat bird, it was less desirable as a table bird because of this very long time to reach butchering weight. Roosters can reach 13 pounds or 5.9 kilograms and hens reach around 10 pounds or 4.5 kilograms. Now, caponized or castrated roosters can actually reach a whopping 20 pounds, which is bonkers. Despite their large size, This breed is famous for being calm and gentle. It's often middle of the pecking order, sometimes even low on the pecking order despite their size. 
Now, because of their exceptional size, they're not very good flyers, but they still need a large space to roam because you're going to want to avoid obesity with this species. Well, with any breed, but particularly for the Jersey giant, they are prone to obesity if they don't have enough space. Hens produce large brown eggs and they tend to have quite a long laying season, laying well through the winter months. This breed is cold hardy, but prone to heat stress in the summer. So you need to make sure you have shade and adequate water. They have clean legs. The shanks and toes are black to dusty yellowish green with yellow soles of the feet. Hence, my new girl is a black Jersey giant. Now, what baffles me about this is that Jersey giants are not super common. It seems likely that this girl was purchased in the spring or early fall. I believe that she's a pullet. She's not laying yet. And she is only slightly smaller than my other hens, which places her as quite young for a Jersey giant. And so somehow between being ordered from a catalogue, she ended up running loose in the city. She obviously hasn't been handled much. She's very scared of people. And she had to learn that there's a roof over her head in the run. She seems to be very surprised by ceilings. So I think she's been running loose for a very long time. And so I, it's very odd to me that kind of an unusual breed like this hasn't been looked for or claimed. I haven't seen any adverts. I did go looking to see if anyone was missing a Jersey Giant or an Australorp in case they weren't sure what they had because it's a common mistake. I couldn't find anything. No one called animal control, nothing. So I really hope there isn't someone out there who is missing her um, and just didn't know where to look, but I haven't been able to find anything. So as I mentioned previously, she was actually found with the rooster who they also think is an Australor, but now I'm wondering if he is a Jersey giant. I didn't have a chance to check the soles of his feet, so I don't know. Um, but I have been thinking about him a lot. I have had no success finding him a home. And after speaking to my husband, I decided that he would be coming here. So I'm actually going to be picking him up the day before this podcast goes live. And I am pretty excited actually. So I have been considering a rooster for a little while. Um, I initially... So, okay, going back a bit, the reason I want a rooster is I want to free roam my large flock because I keep not having time to build the chicken tractor. And the reason I haven't free roamed this flock is because I used to have a really bad problem with roaming dogs coming on the property uh, and hawks. Now, the dog issue seems to have cleared up. We haven't had a dog on the property in months and months. So I'm hoping that that is dealt with. And in terms of hawks, there's nothing we can do about them. But a rooster is a very good protector and keeps an eye out for predators coming from above. So I feel like I could free roam and they could make use of all this incredible forage that I have for them with a rooster to take care of them. And I can hear a rooster crowing a couple of streets over and it's such a lovely sound. I don't know if I still feel that way if he starts going off at like four in the morning, but I figured it was worth a shot. Now, the special needs coop, they don't have the space for a rooster. Um, I will definitely have to build them a chicken tractor because as it stands right now, the new girl is going to be with the special needs coop because I need three hens so they can keep themselves warm through the winter. And because the special, the new girl, sorry, is very 
nervous and she's even scared of the other chickens. So if I put her in with the big flock, they will kill her. They are so awful. They're so mean. So um, I put her in with my special needs girls. And I remember when I told, so I, I quarantined her. I let them see her. I let them communicate through fencing for a bit before I introduced her. And my husband said, how do you think it's going to go? And I was like, oh, it will be fine because Agatha is always on the bottom of the totem pole and gets picked on real bad with most chickens. So I didn't think it, she'd be an issue. And Squeak doesn't have a beak and is super submissive. So I'm like, I've never seen Squeak be aggressive. So of course I spoke too soon. And I introduced this new girl and Squeak goes after her. Now, it sounds terrible because the new girl's like, you know, and Squeak's like, and chasing her down. But Squeak, like I said, doesn't have a beak. And she's not pecking and attacking, or like using her feet or like going for the comb or anything. She's like grabbing feathers and just like tweaking them, you know, like, like pulling her pigtails. So I think what happened is that when Bubbles got sick and then died, Squeak had been next in line and now squeak is like this is my chance i have to be queen bitch now and so my sweet little production hen with no beak is now queen bitch so the first 24 hours were a bit fraught squeak would chase the new girl into a corner agatha then would would come in take a couple of like pecks at the new girl just to be like yeah take that and then they'd leave her alone The first night, though, all three were in the coop and the new girl was actually sitting next to Squeak. And she's still hiding, but not as badly during the day. So I think they have basically worked it out. And I do think that with time, they will bond together. It's always very fraught introducing a new hen into a flock. So right now, because she's slow growing, this hen should be okay in the smaller coop. And I will get a tractor for her so that she can stretch her legs and do like proper roaming outside of the run. Unless she becomes really exceptionally large, I might have to move her into the big flock. We'll have to see. Also, if the rooster is a Jersey giant and I want to incubate some eggs and raise some purebred Jersey giant babies, then I might need to introduce them. But right now, it's a flock of three in the special needs coop. I have seven hens in the big flock, which I will be introducing the rooster to once he's quarantined. So fingers crossed, I will be posting how things go on my Instagram and I'm hoping that things go well. I do actually have someone who is interested in him if it doesn't work out. And so that's nice to have a backup plan. I'm very appreciative of that. Um, So that's it. That's it for today. I'm sorry if I've been a little all over the place. Like I said, I've had kind of a crazy morning. And then when I was recording just now, I realized that I had left out a huge chunk of notes. I had to go grab my book. Uh, Usually what I do is I write my notes in a book and then I type them up and I read from uh, like a Google doc when I record, but I forgot to type up some of these notes. So I was reading from the book and I'm just a bit flustered today, but thank you for bearing with me thank you for listening. And I'd also like to thank my sources. So I'm going to post a link in the episode description and on the website uh, to the Wikipedia article about that rooster 
Basil, who was uh, burned at the stake for being a witch in Switzerland. I also did mention the Chicken Health Handbook by Gail Damaro. It's an incredible book. I am so grateful that I have it. I also got information today from Stories Illustrated Guide to Poultry Breeds by Carol Acarius and the Illustrated Guide to Chickens by Celia Lewis. I do recommend checking those books out if you can. They have beautiful photos and in the Celia Lewis book, it's actually beautiful paintings and drawings. It's absolutely stunning. So I'm super grateful to all of you especially those who've been reaching out to me through Instagram or the website. I really love hearing from you and I very much enjoy getting to follow along with your own homesteading, beekeeping and or chicken keeping journey. Instagram is just such a fun place to hang out. I've met some really like-minded people there. I've met um, clients there. It's just wonderful. So I'm often over there, but you can also find me on Facebook. My username on both sites is homestead hens and honey and you can also email me directly at homestead hens and honey or one word at gmail.com uh i think we all know that a very big election is coming up so please stay safe out there and go vote if you haven't already exercise your right to vote i am a proud american citizen and also a proud british citizen and i vote in every election and i am very grateful to do so and Finally, as always, hug your hands and then wash your hands. Thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.